Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and this show is brought to you by your friends at Generation Joshua. As we travel around the country working with young leaders, we meet all sorts of amazing people who are working to change their corner of the world for the better. If you've ever been to one of our iGovern camps, you've probably heard from some of these people. But we thought that it would be awesome if we could sit down for some in-depth conversations and get their stories on the record so that we could share them with the greater Gen J community. This podcast is the culmination of that process, and we think that you're going to find these conversations encouraging and inspiring. So go ahead, pop in your headphones, connect to your Bluetooth speaker, whatever you got to do, and let's get into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Generation Joshua podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and my guest today is Michael Ferris. And I want to tell you a little bit about him before we jump into the conversation. Michael P. Ferris is president and CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom. As the second CEO of ADF, he brings to the role a diverse background as an effective litigator, educator, public advocate, and communicator, and is widely recognized for his successful work on both the national and international stage. Ferris was founding president of both the Homeschool Legal Defense Association in 1983 and Patrick Henry College in the year 2000, and continues to serve as chairman of the board of HSLDA and chancellor emeritus of PHC. He graduated from Western Washington State College, magna cum laude, with a bachelor's degree in political science, followed by a Juris Doctor from Gonzaga University with honors. He also earned an LLM in public international law with honors from the University of London. Ferris has specialized in constitutional appellate litigation. In that capacity, he has argued before the appellate courts of 13 states, eight federal circuit courts of appeal, and the United States Supreme Court, where in 2018, he successfully argued NIFLA versus Barrera, resulting in a free speech victory for California's pro-life pregnancy centers. Ferris has testified many times before both the House and the Senate. He was an executive committee member of the Coalition for the Free Exercise of Religion that successfully lobbied Congress for the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. He also has substantial experience in international religious freedom advocacy. Ferris is the author of over 15 books, as well as law review and other scholarly and popular articles. He and his wife, Vicki, have 10 children and many grandchildren and... Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Daniel. You forgot to mention that I used to be the shoeshine boy for the Tri-City Angels uh, Visiting Clubhouse baseball team. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, we might have to dig into that. Yeah. What, uh, what, what era of, of your career I did was, that take uh, place I was 17 in? years old. Amazing. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. So. Um, that's, quite a, that's quite a list. That's, yeah. that's quite a list of, of adventures, experiences, um, credibility. And I should also mention that you were the founder of Generation Joshua, which is... I was. the anyone who I think anyone who's listening to this podcast is familiar with Generation Joshua or our <laughs> marketing is really working well. So um, yeah, so thanks for being here today. Thanks for taking the time. Um, as our listeners can tell, it's not like you don't have other stuff to be doing. So we appreciate it. Glad to do it. So I think we'll talk about probably everything that was referenced in your bio, but before I like to kind of start back at the beginning, let our listeners get to know you on some of those gaps that maybe didn't make it in the bio. So my first question is, where did you grow up and what kind of environment was it? Okay, sure. Uh, Despite what Wikipedia says, I was born in Arkansas. 
uh, Wikipedia says I was, I was born in Spokane, Washington, but that's not true. Interesting. Uh, but I was born in Conway, Arkansas, and we moved to Washington State when I was three. And so I grew up in Kennewick, Washington, which is on the desert side of Washington State. Uh, my dad was a public school teacher and then later a principal. When I was a third grade, he became an elementary school principal. And um, uh, most importantly, my parents became Christians. Um within basically a month of moving to Kennewick, Washington. So in, wow. in 1954, um, they both accepted Christ uh, at my uh, at the high school I graduated from. My dad was a uh, given a job during the summer as a janitor, uh, and there was a, a tent evangelist who had his tent blown down by a windstorm, and so he rented the high school auditorium, had janitor, was a Christian, and put my dad on duty as the night janitor to, so he would be there at the revival services and hope that he got saved. And that's what happened the first night. Oh my, brought my mom the second night and my parents, uh, uh, you know, joined the janitor's church. And my dad passed away five years ago, approximately. And, wow. and my mom's still a member of that same church wow. some 65 years later. And, that's incredible. Uh, and so I, I grew up in a... Um, uh, home of new believers. Uh, we were uh, regularly at church all of my all of my childhood years, and I uh, would describe those years spiritually as, especially by the time I was about ninth grade or tenth grade, something like that. As I was, I was genuinely repentant every Sunday. Okay. The, okay and, sure. And by <laughs> Tuesday. I was back living in the world, and okay. sometimes by Monday, right. I was back living in the world. And by the world standards, I was always a good kid. Yeah. Um, but by godly standards, I wasn't living up to what I knew I, I should do, and, and I knew the difference. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the important thing is I rededicated my life to Christ, uh, sitting on the, my lifeguard stand. Uh, uh, there in Kennewick, uh, uh, there's a lagoon off the Columbia River where I was a beach lifeguard. And one of my good friends from high school had gone off to college, gotten saved, and he, he got up on the stand to start share the, the four spiritual laws with me. Oh, my goodness. And when I um, recited all the verses perfectly and the copyright date of the four spiritual laws, he said, uh, well, Mike, you may be a Christian, but you sure didn't live like one in high school. Interesting. And it was on that, in, in that conversation um, that I rededicated myself to, to Christ in, a, in the way that really counted um, although I'd done it many, many other times. but uh, And my chief problem at that point in time um, was I was in love with a girl that wasn't a believer. Okay. And uh, that night, the same night I was on my lifeguard stand, uh, I was talking to that girl as I did every night. She lived in Northern California, okay. um, and I lived in Washington State. We were going to college together, uh, but in the summer we were apart, and um, she had prayed to receive Christ that day. Oh, my goodness. Um, that same day. And we will have been married 50 years this September. Wow. That's incredible. Congratulations. So there's a there's a quick yeah. whole biography of the spiritual side of things. Wow. More or less. That's, that's amazing. Um, what was it like? How, how old were you when your parents became Christians? I was three. Okay. Yeah. Did you, I'm guessing that was too young to notice a massive shift yeah. in the household. But... True enough. Um, there were things in my dad's life yeah. that um, needed to be sorted out over the years. Sure. Um, but the the basics were all there. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad was really, a, really a remarkable man. But he had some, he had a couple of glitches that I, I could tell there had been a past. Sure, sure. Um, and, um, uh, you know, 
so anyhow, um, but I, I accepted Christ when I was six. All right. Um, and uh, my sister and I, she, I have an older sister that's two years older than me. We, we, got, we accepted Christ on the same day. Wow. Uh, November 9th, 1957. Wow. And uh, um, so got baptized a couple of years after that. That's really awesome. All right. So next question. Were you always passionate about freedom and religious liberty, or was that something that developed uh, much later? Well, I was very interested in politics from the time I could read, and I could read before I went to first grade. Fascinating. Um, And I was reading the newspaper every day as a little kid. I'm five and six years old. I was reading the newspaper every day. Um, And um, What did you read? The Tri-City Herald. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and and you were reading the articles, not the comics, not the. Well, I read the comics too. Good, that's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, um, but uh, but I was reading, you know, the the, the regular articles. That's amazing. Uh, and I was, by the time I was in the fourth grade, I wanted. Uh, I was walking across the field with my dad, uh, changing irrigation pipe. Okay. And um, and I was talking about politics, and my dad said. Uh, well, Mike, if you want to get involved in politics, you should become a lawyer, like Mr. Morbeck over there. And he pointed to a lawyer's house across the field. Yep. And he said, lawyers make $20,000 a year. <laughs> and I thought, wow. Uh, you know, that, was, that was like a million dollars in those days to me. Um, just in context, a brand new Mustang when it first came out, and this this would have been a few years after later, but a brand new Mustang was two thousand dollars. So oh it was it was ten Mustangs that the lawyers made. And that was just like so. So that's that is to, the corollary today would, would is massively good money. Yeah, it's massively good money. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, my parents' house was eleven thousand dollars, so oh it's two goodness. houses. <laughs> so wow, wow. Uh, there's so many questions to follow up with that. Mostly it's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, so you, you see, so would it be fair to say the newspaper is what got you interested in politics to begin well, with? And my dad, my dad, yeah. um, w- you know, liked to talk about it. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I, I would watch TV news with them, but, but it was mainly reading the newspaper. All right. And, uh, you know, I, I paid attention and, um, I, I guess, you know, a, a small thing, um, is except for President Obama, and I, I, I intend to cure this. I, I I have seen in person every president wow. since Eisenhower. Wow. Um, and um, including Biden, I've seen Biden in person. Uh, wow. And and I've met um, probably six of them. Uh, right. And so, but but seeing, I, I shook Lyndon Johnson's hand when I was ten years old. Uh, it felt just like a giraffe's tongue. Uh, uh, and the reason I know that is because uh, I had fed a giraffe at the Portland, Oregon Zoo a week okay. before. Um, but um, Well, that, that's, I mean, that sounds like very valid research yeah, that's, for, that's for right. an 11-year-old. That's right. And so, you know, I, so I had some exposure to it. I saw JFK the summer before he was assassinated. Wow. And, um, um, and so, you know, it, it fed my interest. I, I don't think those things you know, created my interest. Mm-hmm. I think my interest was in reading. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and, and so by the time I was in high school, I was, I was definitely headed toward, you know, I want to be a lawyer and I want to be involved in Christian causes. So it wasn't religious liberty per se. My dad hated the ACLU. Okay. And, and, um, um, he was a public school principal. He hated the ACLU. And I found out at his funeral why he hated him more than I even knew is because he was, 
witnessing to kids. He, he led kids to Christ in his office. Wow. Um, um, I mean, the number... Let me see if I can say this without crying. Um, the, I don't know of very many people that would go to their public elementary school um, principal's funeral after he's been retired for 30 years. So you haven't been in his classroom, you know, his school yeah. for, for a very long time. Yeah. And you come to his funeral. Well, it's because he um, ministered to people in a way that that touched them. And so he was way over wow. the line. I mean, I don't know that I could have defended everything that he did. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, he hit the ACLU with good reason because he was using his uh, his role as ministry. Um, wow. and, and That's so, powerful. Um, so I, I was planning to become a lawyer. My, my original goal was to uh, represent school districts to fight against the ACLU. Wow. Um, but by the time I got through with law school, schools had switched sides. Right. And they were on the same side as the ACLU. Right. And, and I had, you know, Vicki and I uh, by this time had decided that we would not uh, have our kids do public schooling. We were, you know, initially uh, we started off with in Christian school because we didn't even know about homeschooling. Sure. And and but uh, but we had made a decision that Christian education was essential. Mm-hmm. And so so I had um, you know still interested in education and law. It was, it was education and law that was really my wrote okay. my undergraduate honors thesis on on uh, uh, education law. And and so um, that's very consistent. Yeah. That, like that's very that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, that, okay, wow. So that's the perfect segue. Homeschooling came in. Yeah. You founded HSLDA in the 80s. Yeah. It sounds like you're saying you, you did Christian school, weren't really even aware of what homeschooling was. How did you come across homeschooling? And then eventually, why did you start HSLDA? Okay, sure. Um, well, it was in 82, I believe. Um, I was working for Concerned Women for America. Uh, Bevla Hayes, the president of that, and Tim... Uh, if you work for Bevel Hay, especially at that level, you work for Tim LaHay as well. So um, makes so sense. I, they were my mentors in many, many ways. I, I truly love Tim and Bevel Hay. Wow. Um, but um, uh, they had a television show for a brief period of time, okay. and um, I would go with them to all the filming. And, and one of the episodes, I was the guest, but but mostly I was just there as their legal counsel and chief cook and bottle washer. And nice. and, uh, um, and they had a guest named Raymond Moore. On the program, and uh, Dr. Moore uh, cornered um, Linda Hay uh, Murphy, their oldest daughter, who okay. helped them with stuff. And um, her husband Gerald Murphy was an assistant pastor with Tim. Okay. And um, um, he cornered the two of us and, and gave us his best thirty-minute pitch on why we should homeschool. Wow. And so, um, and then he did a program with Tim and Bev about homeschooling, and I listened to that too. But it was really that thirty-minute pitch that. Uh, Got me, and then I so I, I flew home to talk to Vicky about it, and um, she had already heard Doctor Moore on Focus on the Family. Oh wow! And had been praying about homeschooling because she she didn't want to tell me about it because you know I'd been so insistent on getting our kids in school as early as possible, and you know uh, you know I was, you know my dad was a school principal and all that, sure. and so she was afraid to talk to me about homeschooling, and here I came home pitching it to her. It was, you know, like a big answer to her prayer. So, uh, our oldest daughter, Christy, was in. Uh, um, eight, it was April, so it's the last month or two of her first grade year in a Christian school. Okay. And so we decided that come September we would start homeschooling. Wow. And so it was uh, uh, then, and and so within a year, um, and because I was working with CWA and had a 
a, a beginning national uh, visibility. But in Washington State, I was a I was a fairly well known public figure. Okay. I'd, I'd run more a majority of Washington for a while before that. And, okay. Um, and so people knew, A, he's this lawyer who does this kind of stuff, and B, now he's homeschooling. So I started getting a whole lot of requests for help, legal help for homeschooling. And I figured this is a really good way to go broke. Um, and, and yeah. Because when people say they want a, a, a Christian lawyer, what they really want is a free lawyer. <laughs> and and so um, it... I, I started HSLDA mostly in self-defense uh, um, so that I wouldn't have to just represent all the homeschoolers in the world for free and starve right. my family to death. Yeah. Um, so um, I started it. I approached Mike Smith about uh, helping me start it, and uh, the rest is history. Wow. That's awesome. You know, that's interesting just hearing you tell the story of both your rededication to Christ and then figuring out, okay— God tell Vicky about it, yeah, and then she was already there, yeah. that same day. Sounds a little bit similar to homeschooling. It, it is a pattern. That, that's you're the first person that's ever observed that. I've never thought of that either. That's a, a I don't know very interesting pattern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, so um, 1983 was longer ago than I feel like it is, yeah. and and I wasn't even alive in 1983. Just full disclosure. Um, how has homeschooling changed since the 80s? You've been at the core of a lot of it. Yeah, well, it's radically different. Um, uh, in the 80s, in the early 80s, when we started HSLDA, all of the officials thought homeschooling was illegal everywhere. Okay. Um, now, even as a matter of statutory law, they were wrong in a couple states. Okay. And it was our contention they were wrong as a matter of constitutional law everywhere. Good, but, right. But... but uh, just on the just reading the statutes, there were a couple of states it was it was okay, okay. Um, but <clears throat> the uh, and so you, you're in this atmosphere of general illegality, and society is extraordinarily suspicious of you, mm-hmm. and so people were tended to hide, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, they're afraid, and then they, they would keep their curtains drawn, and you know they they wouldn't let their kids go outside until you know four three thirty four o'clock, yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, the kids were, they were taught these elaborate defense mechanisms when they're at the grocery store and they say, where do you go to school? Everybody gave their, their, right. their homeschool a Christian school name. And they right. would just, you know, they would give the name of their, their, their Christian school, Christian school name. Yeah. And, and, and people, oh, you know, they didn't know yeah. what, what to do with that. Yeah. And, um, so, and so that was a kind of the legal and, um, societal side of it. Um, but from an educational perspective, you know, you could put all the vendors for homeschooling in my family's 15 passenger van, you know, there, there, wow. were, there were essentially almost no materials. The, at first, the only people that would sell books to homeschoolers was Bob Jones university. Wow. A, a Becca would sell you the student man, man materials, but not the teacher's manuals. Interesting. Yeah. And so, um, so eventually they figured out there was a pretty good market and they changed their viewpoint on that. And they're, they're still well, they make both a, leading. They make a yeah, t- yeah. ton of money yeah. uh, f- from the movement. But at first they didn't like homeschooling. Interesting. Uh, but um, so BJU was really the first. Uh, and so, so our family um, homeschooled for 33 years. Wow. And we used basically a combination of BJU and a Becca plus some Saxon math. Okay. Got to have For all 33 years. Um, now, a lot of good stuff came 
in the in the meantime. I don't think that we would do do that exact pattern sure. if we were starting today. Sure. But my wife got used to it, and it was and what I've said to countless moms. Pick a curriculum that's easy for you to do. Yep. And 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 you know it's better to have a sane mom than the, than the perfect curriculum. Right. Right. And and so um, so anyhow, that's what we did for thirty three years. And uh, so the homeschooling movement, you know, now it's in the dictionary. Uh, you know, there are cartoons about it. There's re- references on pop- popular television. Yeah. Everybody knows what homeschooling is today. And especially, you know, even before the pandemic, everybody knows what homeschooling is. But everybody yeah. really knows what it is today. And so it's so just, true. It's, it's an amazing thing for, to go from a few hundred families that were homeschooling when we started in 82 yeah. uh, to... Ten percent of the population yeah. today—it's just—it's yeah. just flat amazing. I think I saw an email from HSLDA yesterday that said homeschooling doubled during the pandemic. That's—that's—that's that's, that's true, and that's people who are really homeschooling, not just people who are doing public school right. through a computer at their house. Right, right. Uh, it's people who have told the public schools, "We're done. Thank you yep. very much. Goodbye. We're going to uh, take the responsibility ourselves." And so, Wh- that, which you know, not to not to go too far down that rabbit trail but so many people after the experience of just trying to make it work it wasn't you know it wasn't some for a lot of people it wasn't some ideological i reject such and such it yeah. was like what they rejected was their kid crying and saying i can't do this or just not doing it and yeah. nothing was happening that's a, that's very interesting um all right so hsda was started you're you're going you're beginning that 33 year homeschool journey and then you start uh, a lot of things. One of them being Generation Joshua. Yeah. Uh, a good bit later, but but um, in you know somewhere down that succession. Why did you start Generation Joshua? Well, uh, there were two steps in it. Um, first, um, I was in an office about forty feet from where we're doing this recording. Yeah. And um, Mark and Krista Young from Michigan were visiting. Okay. Um, we had represented, I had argued in the Michigan Supreme Court, uh, their case, Chris Klicka had done that case in the, in the trial court level okay. along with David Coleman, uh, who's a Michigan lawyer, has been a longtime friend of HSLDA. Awesome. But I argued their case in the Michigan Supreme Court and we won. Um, and they were here just visiting and, you know, we were talking about, you know, all the stuff that had happened over the years and, um, and, uh, uh, Mark said, you know, Mike, I think HSLD is going to be remembered uh, like the founding fathers. You know, the, the, what we start did here uh, was so important that it's going to be, you know, the rebirth of the country is going to be, you know, you guys are going to be the founding fathers. And, and I said, well, I, I, let, me, let me pose a different alternative. I said, uh, I think that uh, we're going to be more like the generation that taught the founding fathers. Okay, sure. Um, and then I said, actually, a better analogy is from Israel. Hmm. Um, you know, we're kind of the Moses generation. We're the ones that left yep. Egypt. Yep. And we're saying, you know, we're out of here. We're not going to do it the world's way anymore. But uh, it was the Joshua generation that um, took the land. Mm-hmm. And I used it, used the phrase Joshua generation rather than Generation Joshua. Right, right. And I, I said, uh, and so I feel like... You know, it's it's our kids, the you know, the first generation of homeschoolers that are going to be the ones that really take the land and, mm-hmm. and, and preserve liberty on the on the long haul. And uh, as a result of that conversation, I wrote a book called The Joshua Generation, so, and we were, and and uh, 
Uh, after that, uh, I was approached by a couple of people about starting uh, what Gen J w was. Uh, uh, the Ryan brothers came yeah. to see me about that, and and uh, I, I thought, this is a great thing. We'll blend it together. We call it the Joshua Generation, and we're going to call it the Joshua Generation. Uh -huh. But the the uh, URL was already taken. Wow. And and so, so it became Generation Joshua instead. And actually, it was in the long haul. That was a better choice because yeah. of Gen J. Yeah, is just it has so a snap perfect. to it. Yeah. It, it, well, it's like Gen X, you know, yep. all that other stuff. Yep. So it, it was, uh, you know, I just really believe that that was a God thing. So and, uh, that's, that's amazing. how it started. Yeah. I also, that's really fascinating to me is some of the listeners will know I do most of the marketing and, and public facing info for Gen J. And just thinking that that, that URL could have changed the way I, I wrote everything that's gone out for the past eight years or so. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right, that's that's really awesome. Um, here's here's a bit less of a historical question and more of looking for your insight on something. In recent years, political activity from evangelical Christians from some circles of society has been decried and criticized as Christian nationalism. Yeah, not just not just something that would actually be, you know, problematic. Some something that was that was overly zealous, unbalanced nationalism, but just any Christians being involved in politics and saying, because of my faith, I take this stance, yeah. has been kind of blanketed with this Christian nationalism t label. What is your response to that? Well, it's become a pejorative um, when it's, um, you know, uh, totally un unwarranted. And, and it really... Um, there are there are people who would identify themselves as um, Christian nationalists or whatever uh, who have views that are, are troubling. Sure. Um, but the uh, the one thread I think would be uh, the way to distinguish what, between what's legitimate and what's illegitimate. The illegitimate would say only Christians should have rights. Mm. Religious freedom is only for Christianity. That's mm. a, that's a marker. It's not the only thing that they right. would, people like that would believe. Sure, but that's a marker. Sure, and um, that's not the historical view, and that is you know nowhere near the view of the vast vast majority of evangelical or yeah. conservative Christians. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know um, the historical view is that. Uh, the government has no jurisdiction over the soul of mankind. That's where religious freedom came from in the mm -hmm. first place. It didn't come from the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. It came from the Christian view that the government has no jurisdiction over the soul of man. And and, and uh, accordingly, it doesn't have the jurisdiction over the soul of any man. It, you know, yeah. And the, a shorthand is if Buddhists don't have rights, Baptists won't have rights either. Yeah. And and so... so uh, uh, a genuine Christian believes that everybody should have free speech rights. Free speech mm -hmm. is for everybody. Religious freedom is for everybody. And, and the majority view is only white, Bible-believing Christians should have rights. And, that, that, you know, yeah. if there are nine people in America or, you know, or maybe 900 people right. in America that believe that, okay, there probably exists. And I don't want to have anything to do with such people. Yeah. Um, but... But that's what the, that's the brush they're trying to paint all of us with, yep. and and so um, it, it's just unfair. And it's you know really what's come down to this is this: the the two real groups. If you want to divide America right now into two groups, it's was America's founding illegitimate or legitimate? That's yeah. the central question. That's very true. And and so the um, the argument, like from the sixteen nineteen project, 
is that America was born in slavery and, you know, and, and you know, because they brought slaves in 1619 and, and that's the defining moment of America. And, and it's illegitimate, therefore the Declaration of Independence was illegitimate, the Constitution was illegitimate, and all the superstructure built on that is illegitimate, yeah. and we need to throw it all over and start over. That's, that's the one theory. The other, the response to that is, there was no America in 1619, we were a British colony. Right, and, right. And so, America started on July 2nd and July 4th, 1776. Actually, on July yeah. 2nd, we moved out of the parents' house and said, we're out of here. Because yeah. that's when the when we actually said we're independent. Yeah. But the Declaration of Independence was saying more like we're married. We're going to become one nation. Interesting, sure. And and so the, uh, the, the fact is that on July 4th, 1776, the central premise of the Declaration is all men are created equal. We're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. For these reasons, governments are instituted among men by the consent of the governed. So you take those elements and you've got equality, God-given rights, yep. consent of the governed. That's the three elements that made America. Yep. None of those things were true on July 4th, 1776. Not one of them. Not, and, and so not, equality wasn't in place. God-given rights weren't in place, they weren't being protected, and we didn't have a government by the consent of the government. Mm -hmm. We were setting out on a path, that's what we were going to do. And so those were the goals of America. And everything that we had, we accomplished since then, have been based on those goals. We've been been a progressive path toward achieving those goals. And so... Uh, you know, to criticize America is a hypocrisy on the day you get started? Come on. No. Were they all living according to that? No. They weren't right. living any of this according to that. This is the path we're on. It was a great path. It was yeah. a wonderful path. And if you read things like the Fourth uh, of July speech of uh, Frederick Douglass called What is the Fourth of July to the Slave? Mm-hmm. It's an amazing speech. And he, he says he gives credit to the founders for the right ideals, even though he criticizes some of the things that they did. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fair comment. And he said, but I, but for their ideals, I, I, I honor them and will celebrate yeah. them along with you. But the basic call was, you know, facing slavery, he says, live up to the Declaration of Independence. It was not that it was illegitimate. Right. It's that we're hypocrites. You right. know, in the 1860s, we're hypocrites. We right. got to live up to the Declaration of Independence. And when women were denied the right to vote in the suffragette movement, their call was, live up to the Declaration of Independence. Yep. And so the uh, uh, the call, I mean, the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964, LBJ, even though I shook his hand and even though it felt like a giraffe's tongue, <laughs> and I didn't really like LBJ, yeah. I have to say, despite all that, his speech on the um, for the which was given, I think, on July 2nd, uh, 1964, for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he said, "We're finally living up to the Declaration of Independence mm. in these new yeah. areas." And so, every bit of progress that we've made has not been by tearing down the Declaration; is by being called to let's live up to it. Yep. And so. So there's, there's two groups. You hate America's founding yep. or you love America's founding and you want to live up to the, the honor of that founding. Yep. And um, so if you want the two groups, those are your two groups. That's that's very, yeah, I agree 100%. It's very powerful to think about. And yeah, there's so much we could dig into there. We might we might touch on that in, in the rest of this conversation a little more. Um, here, This is a question that, that is uh, maybe even a little... A little Stickier, but I think that I've with the conversations I've had with Gen J students over the past you know five or ten years or so, they, I th- I think a lot of them and and I can say my own development uh, as a teenager and and you know 
coming into adulthood, you had moments of questions like this, which is basically how can Christians take a stance on the specifics of a current issue without putting words in God's mouth unduly? There's, you know, there's the issues where it says God says this, and then there's the issues where it's my faith in what God says draws me to this conclusion. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, I love the way you articulated the alternative. Um, My faith draws me to this. Uh, And I will will use an analogy, then I will directly answer the question. Okay, great. Uh, uh, I ran for lieutenant governor of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And um, um, people, reporters, kept trying to get me to say that, God told me to run for lieutenant governor, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't do it. I yeah. just I wasn't about you know. I'd say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I try to live my life according to the will of God, and uh, you know, I, I, I I'm trying to live according to the will of God. In, you know, in, in this decision, like all other decisions, but we see through a glass darkly, and you know, it'd yep. be pretty arrogant for me to say, you know, God wants me to do it. I you know, I'm trying. I'm trying right. to obey God. You know, so I give them this this uh, nuanced answer that mm-hmm. they didn't like, and mm-hmm. so one night. Um, I was at an event down by uh, Manassas area, mm-hmm. and uh, a report. I was, I was tired, and a reporter, you know, was just after me on this. And I just had enough, and I said, <laughs> "Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you this story." I, I said, "Yeah, God told me uh, I was supposed to run for lieutenant governor. Here's, here's how he did it." He said, "One night I came down into my my kitchen." Uh, about two o'clock in the morning, and the moon was shining on the refrigerator. We have a chrome refrigerator, and, and you know stainless steel refrigerator. And the moon was shining on it, and there was an image of Elvis in in on, on my refrigerator. And Elvis told me that Jesus told him that I was supposed to run for lieutenant governor of Virginia. And oh I, I had the guy writing stuff down until I got to Elvis. And, and so uh, that's incredible. Yeah. So did any of that make it into the no, story? No. No. Okay. He, yeah. He, he got it. He, he got it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so. Uh, um, anyhow, I, 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 we, we just have to be, um, uh, refrain from arrogance, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, we need to be able to explain why we think, um, our positions are consistent with what we read in scripture. Yeah. And, and, and what we can reason from that and, and explain the reasons. And the more we can explain it, uh, the better we are, uh, but um, and I, I frankly think that uh, that's the way um, Christian principles are enduring when you try to teach them to your kids. If you just tell them what the answers are, yep. it's its stickiness is is less effective yeah. than if you if, if if they really understand the principles and and so. Um, and, and why it's true and, and, and be able to go deeper. And, and the lack of arrogance that we need to exhibit is that, um, and the goal is, is not for God to be on our side, is for us to be on God's side. Yeah. And, and to do the thing that God, uh, things that God wants us to do. And so um, I, I think it's really care, uh, important how we articulate that. that uh, and I think that, uh, you know, and then, there, you know, there are times where, um, if you're, you know, t- teaching an adult Sunday school class, you're more free to say, you know, the Bible says, and therefore you should do this. Sure. I don't think that's a particularly effective audience if you're standing in front of the Kiwanis Club, or, <laughs> yeah, or, you yeah. know, or, or something like that. And and you can argue to the exact same point, but you show um, you show respect for your audience when you assume their worldview. Yep. And you try to make 
arguments that are consistent with the worldview. World I, mean, I was friends with Phyllis Schlafly for a very long time, and she used to say, you have the right to vote for, for my candidate for the reason of your choice. Yes, I and, love that. And, and so we, we need to figure out reasons for, uh, from other people's perspective mm-hmm. why they should reach the conclusions that we reach. That's yeah. effectiveness yeah. In, in political communication. And what's interesting is I, I've talked with some people who, who, who bristle at that, committed yeah. Christians who bristle at that, and they're like, well, no, they should do it because God says. But if you... Th- talk about that same principle that lack of arrogance and what you're talking about with religious freedom where if you're if it's not if it doesn't apply to you it doesn't apply to me that's in a sense respecting their god-given yeah freedoms liberties uh intellect more than an appeal to something that they don't currently yeah. doesn't mean anything to them if they you know if you're like well my bible says this and they're saying well i'm, I'm sorry i'm i don't believe your bible yeah it's not particularly compelling or even necessarily respectful of their, right. you know, image of God in a sense to say, well. Yeah, well, exactly right. I, and I think that uh, um, the, the uh, you know, there, there are multiple scriptural reasons for this. One is, you know, you're not supposed to cast pearls before swine, which mm-hmm. means you, you don't give the spiritual arguments for people who are incapable of, of understanding them. Right. But it doesn't mean you don't give anything to the swine. You've got to give them something. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. so, you you know, you talk to them in a way that they can understand. Yeah. And, and so... Um, and, and you're never going to win an election or any kind of public issue if, if only the people who have a correct understanding of the Bible yep. are your audience. Yep. And so you've got to be able to to give reason. And, and if our truth is 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 the truth, it should be understandable on multiple levels and yep. multiple ways, yep. and that anybody should be able to get it, even if they don't have a, a deep understanding of theology. Yeah. Or, that's you know. that's great, and I think I think that is is insightful and huge. In and I think I've I've seen that. In, in public and, and less public interactions in your own life really well. Like, like that's something I've always admired about you is your ability to have a, a solid, deep faith and also go out on a stage and run for lieutenant governor or something like that and, and connect with the average Joe. Yeah. So that's, that's, I think that's, that's awesome. And I hope our, our listeners can be inspired that, by that. Um, couple questions before we move to what you're currently doing at ADF. On the topic of, of the Joshua generation, why is it important for young people to be in politics? I'm taking that as an assumption because that's kind of Generation Joshua's yeah. ethos. But. Yeah. Well, I think every American should be involved in politics at some level. Mm-hmm. You know, some are uh, called to do it more uh, more of their time. It's, yep. it's, it's part of their, their particular calling in life. Yep. Um, uh I'm not called to, you know, being a medical missionary. Yeah. I'm glad some people are. Yeah. But the medical missionary has a duty as a citizen. Yep. And and I have a duty of compassion for for poor and sick. Yep. You know, the amount of time we each spend on that is going to be a little different. Sure. But we both have a broad scope of duties. Yeah. Now, um, the the main reason that I want as many Christian young people to be involved in politics is as possible is. It's, it's essential for maintaining freedom. So if they want to live mm-hmm. in a free country, they need to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. It, it, and, and, you know, freedom is really pretty easy to define. You know, p- some people have a hard time with it. It's you make your own decisions rather than the government making for you. Mm-hmm. That's what freedom is. Yeah. And so 
where do your kids go to school? Do you decide that, or does the government decide that? Yeah. Uh, you, you get a paycheck with $100. The more uh, of that $100 that you get to decide where to spend, that's the more free you are. Yeah. The more the government decides where that $100 go, the less free you are. Yeah. And so, um, and so if you want to make your own decisions rather than the government making decisions, if you don't want to live in unbelievable debt that my generation and the generations before me are saddling everybody with, right. then you got to get involved in politics so that you can uh, live in a free country, you can live in a moral country, and it's... Uh, and you can have an incredible impact, and you can, you know, the if the people that get involved in a young age have an outsized impact for the rest of their life, mm. and so it's an incredible door opener. Um, you know, the, the number of people that I met meet, um, in you know, who are fully engaged in uh, these issues. They're members of state legislatures. They're members of Congress. They're judges and lawyers and so on that got started when they were you know Christian young people you know now I'm seeing all those from the homeschooling movement in in those kind of positions the, you know not everybody in this, those positions uh, got started young but most of them did most that's, of them did that's awesome says the person who was reading the political articles at age six in the newspaper yeah so says, yeah exactly lead by example yeah, quite yeah. great <laughs> <laughs> um, right. <laughs> all right um you're the president of Alliance Defending Freedom. What does that involve? ADF is the largest Christian or conservative legal organization in the world. Uh, we have 350 employees. Um, uh, we're growing rapidly. Um, and uh, 75 lawyers, approximately. Wow. And uh, so we're litigating regularly in the Supreme Court. We usually have one to two cases in the Supreme Court every year. This year we'll have two. Wow. Um, We've argued one already. We'll, we'll, we have another one coming up on April 29th. Um, probably the most famous of our cases is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, Kristen Wagner, our general counsel, argued that. She did yep. a great job. We won 7-2. to two. Um, the, Perhaps the second most famous is the one that I argued, the uh, Niffle versus Becerra. Becerra was the Attorney General of yep. California. is now the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And that was forcing uh, pro-life pregnancy centers in California to give a pro-abortion message. Yeah, uh, on the, I remember uh, that one. And so we won, we won that five to four. Um, we've won an, a, a number of cases in the Supreme Court. And uh, the one we have coming up in April is um, whether um, the state of California can force nonprofits to do, to disclose all of their donors um, so, yeah. that, so that they can be doxxed by the left. That's yeah. what, that's what yeah. that's really for. Yeah. And, and so... Um, so we're, we're, you know, donor privacy is very important issues. We, we deal with five issues, right to life, freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, uh, sexual and marital sanity. Yeah. Uh, so all the transgender sports cases yeah. you're hearing, we do, we do all of those cases. Cool. Uh, and the uh, uh, parental rights, we're just getting started in parental rights. Uh, that, that was Great. an add-on after I got there. Seems uh, like a good fit. Yeah, it's a pretty good fit. Uh, I, well, the international portion of ADF... Um, has been um, doing parental rights for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I asked, why the disparity? Why didn't you know, yeah. the domestic side do it too? And they said, well, Mike, you guys were doing such a good job over at HSLD and parental rights, we didn't think we you had to. And I said, well, I appreciate the compliment, but we could have used the help. Yeah. So, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, so we've added True. parental rights to the portfolio. That's and, fantastic. Uh, those are the basic things that we do. That's really awesome. Um, Hmm. There was some one thing you said made me want to ask a follow up. 
75 lawyers, that's a lot of lawyers. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's a lot. Um, what are some of, as, as much as you can share, what are some of the issues, cases, or projects that ADF is focusing on in 2021? Well, we um, uh, have uh, done a number of the uh, church COVID cases, and those oh, are yeah. starting to wrap up pretty well. Uh, we won the uh, the case involving the church in Nevada, the Calvary Chapel Church in Nevada, that was being uh, constricted far more dramatically than the casinos yeah. were, and so yeah, yeah. we we uh, we won that at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, we we did we did the first case really that anybody heard about when they arrested the people in Mississippi in the church parking lot for doing a drive-in church service. Mm-hmm. And so that was our case. Uh, so we did a number of cases in that zone, but uh, the transgender sports cases are, are a yeah. big portion of what we're doing right now. We, we also uh, just won a big case um, in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, for a college professor that didn't uh, um, believe that using um, male pronouns to describe... Um, or, or, or I forget which gender it was, mm-hmm. but a person who who identified as the opposite of their, uh, you know, a male that identifies as a woman, he yeah. would he would not use the male pronouns for that person. He would sure. he, he would call them by whatever first name they wanted to be called by. Sure. So, uh, you know, if, if they wanted to be called Frank and their yeah. birth name was Sarah, yeah. he'd call him Frank, whatever. Yeah. But it, um, but it would violate his conscience to miss. Uh, describe them um, by pronoun. He was, he was agreeing with the uh, contention that God did not create you, us male and female, mm-hmm. and he would not go mm-hmm. along with that contention. And we, we won that. It was a very great, great decision written by Judge Thapar in the Sixth Circuit. So we've got, but we have more cases in that zone that we're litigating right now, a number of cases like that. Um, so uh, the, uh, um, a case that uh, uh, we, we will enter... Um, before this podcast is actually played, probably because okay. it'll be in the next twenty-four hours, yep. um, is uh, a, a group of um, students at a variety of Christian colleges have sued the De- U.S. Department of Education for giving religious exemptions uh, oh. from from the non-discrimination rules. And interesting. And so there are students at Liberty and other other colleges. You know, they don't live up to the standards of. Of liberty and yeah, you know, uh, and so we're we are uh, uh, they've sued the Biden administration. Well, so guess what? You know how's that going to work out? Yeah. The Biden administration defending the right of Christian colleges to so we're representing Christian colleges. They're going to intervene in that case. Okay, okay, that, that's a really important case. And wow. and so uh, what well, what it would do is it would take down any religious exemptions built into the law, hmm. uh, and it would effectively attack the constitutionality of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that. Gives Gives yeah. broad exemptions to, uh, and I helped write the Religious Freedom yeah. Restoration Act, so I, you know I've got a dog in that fight. Sure, of course. Um, so anyhow, that's uh, what level does ADF get involved in these different cases? You're talking yeah. about, you know, it, settling them in, in appellate courts, getting victories there. Are, does ADF ever get involved the first time it goes to court at the most local level? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We, 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 most of these, I mean, the, the college case is in the trial yeah. court right now. Yeah. And so we're, we're intervening in the trial court. We represented Jack Phillips from the beginning okay. yep. until the end. We represent Beryl L. Stutzman, the, the Christian florist from my home community. Sure. She's from Richland, Washington. Her trial was in Kennewick. I graduated from Kennewick High School. Wow. So... Um, that case is sitting at the Supreme Court now for well over a year, okay. and we represented her from the very beginning. Um, and so 
we mostly represent from the beginning. Once in a while, we take over a case at the appellate level yeah. uh, because somebody wants us to, but yeah. uh, at least... Pretty often right there from, from yeah, the first. The vast majority of the time. That's great. Yeah. A um, couple uh, questions broadly related to freedom, and, and I love your definition of freedom, that, that it's basically are you making the decision or is the government making the decision? Um, we recently just celebrated, whatever you want to call it, a year of coronavirus lockdown for most of the country. What are your thoughts on the pandemic response from the government from a constitutional perspective? Well, I, I, there are multiple constitutional problems. Uh, first of all, the, the basic rule of a, of a republic in, is in both the federal government and the states are supposed to operate as republics. Mm -hmm. In a republic, the legislature makes the law not the governor. Mm -hmm. And when governors can make up the law on the fly, and, and that's what we've been living under, yeah. that is fundamentally unconstitutional um, at, at the get-go. And so um, some of the things that they have done, if, a, if the legislature would have passed it, would probably be held to be constitutional and probably should be held to be constitutional. Mm -hmm. But almost none of what they have done is constitutional in in a pr proper sense okay. is because yep. they were uh, taking law making power into their own hands. Yep. Um, and uh, if there's any emergency power, it doesn't extend as long as we've been. You shouldn't you know, be able to throw a birthday party for it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's my thing. I'm like, I feel like we need a really sad cupcake. Like yeah. it's been 12 months. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, um, so I, I, there's just so much of it that is. Uh, is is wrong and, and and so much of this stuff is based on conjecture um, and the government's supposed to be able to prove things mm -hmm. um, uh, before they violate people's constitutional rights mm, you know yeah. one one th one thing that really bothers me is that um, the government has shut down businesses on a on a uh, winners and losers basis. Mm -hmm. you know, some people have made an enormous amount of money and businesses have flourished and others have been crushed. Yep. Um, and the, uh, uh, the, the principle of can the government commandeer your business for a, a public necessity is, yeah, they can. It's called eminent domain and you have to pay the fair market value of what you're taking away from yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, And so if, if we're going to say it's, it, it's a public necessity for us to shut down all the haircutting places. Yep. Let's use that as an example. Yep. Uh, and, and you're, you're, uh, if that's the case, okay, all right. If that was really the case, and yeah. then oh, that's eminent domain, and you can do that. Yeah. Pay them. Right. That. So that's a really fascinating thing because with the whole stimulus payments yeah. that has been going out, you know, I'm a conservative, a fiscally conservative. I don't love the addition to the debt at all. Yeah. On some level. Part of me was saying, if you, for especially the people where you've shut down their entire industry, you've basically done eminent domain over their their entire right. business and, and livelihood, and you're telling them we will refuse to let you to, to make money the way you make money. You, so you better be ready to back that up. Yeah, and it's not fourteen hundred dollars. Right? No. No, it's no. Like, it's like you you owe this guy six million. Right. You know, right. Yeah. And and so opportunity costs and everything. Yeah. yeah. You know. And, and so the. Uh, um, I, I think that that's you know just uh, you know a grossly unconstitutional yeah. action. Um, it's arbitrary and capricious. You know, what's a what's a uh, essential business? 
Mm-hmm. What's an, an essential business? The, the you, governments are not supposed to be make rules that are arbitrary. Yeah. You know, marijuana shops are essential. Churches are not. I mean, right. come on. Right. Who died and made you king? Right. And and so uh, I, there's just if we had uh, courts with real courage, all of this would have been shut down. Yeah. You know, in, in a in a hurry. I love it. Um, the rise of what people are calling wokeness. You could also call it far left authoritarianism, whatever term is your your preferred preferred label. I feel like you know it's it's obvious to say that's skyrocketed in the last couple of years. How do we respond? And if there's you know, also slash, is there anything that that's like a gaping hole in the response strategy right now? Well, uh, boy, um, we are spending a lot of our time at ADF. On this, because the you know the the derivative of this is the corporate council culture yes. and, and yeah. all the stuff that goes with that, and we're getting ready to file a lawsuit that I can't tell you about on okay. air, um, but we're we're going to go after one of the big boys really soon, cool, um, and uh, uh, for one of their cancel culture things, um, but. I would encourage everybody listening to this to, to read at least the first couple hundred pages of the book uh, Witness by Al, uh, Whitaker Chambers. Okay. Uh, he was a uh, member of the American Communist Party, and then he became a Christian. Hmm. And, and this is in the 30s. Yep. And he explains why socialism and communism is so attractive to people uh, if you don't have God. Hmm. And, and that um, and, and he, he makes it you know a much more compelling case for communism and socialism but then he then he shows you the flip side why he left communism was mm. this ultimately it, it has to the very nature of the belief system has to coerce people violently into following their their view and they think yep. the ends justify the means so the gulags the concentration camps yep. are inherent in, in in socialism and communism yep. and so the 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 repression of liberty the shouting people down the the um, cancel culture, trying to destroy people's careers, using coercive tactics to tr- uh, try to accomplish your political gains yeah. in an Ill, clearly illicit way is inherently baked into the philosophy that they've, they've adopted. And so the moving the American League or the, the, national, the MLB All-Star Game yep. is a warm-up to the gulag. Hmm. It, 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 it's the it's the you know it's the kindergarten version of what's coming in graduate school, hmm. and so they believe that the ends justify the means, and that yeah. we are going to coerce you into following us. You yeah. know, um, uh, shut up, he reasoned. You know, mm-hmm. or shut up, or we'll shoot you. He reasoned is <laughs> is basically what what they're doing. Sure, and so um, it is totalitarian to the core. Uh, they're the fascists. They're the totalitarians. Mm-hmm. They're the people. They're the brown shirts. They're mm-hmm. the people that wear jackboots. Yeah. Th- this is this, uh, and it's it's um, the 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 opposite pr- principle is this. I may disagree with everything you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Yeah. That's Americanism. Yeah. And that came from respecting the soul rights. Of other people that came from Christianity, mm-hmm. that worldview. But everybody in America, when I, when I, until very recently, I mean, like five years ago, if you ask a, a public opinion poll, do you agree with the statement? 
uh, I may disagree with everything you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Is that a, is that a good American principle? 95% yeah. of Americans yeah. would have said yes Not controversial. To that five years ago. Yeah. And so it's, it is, we have rapidly gone into the totalitarian camp. And these people don't believe in freedom anymore. I mean, there's a professor of constitutional law at Georgetown Law School responding to the case that I won in the Supreme Court and another case was on another free speech case, the Janus mm -hmm. case at the same time, responding to both of them, said he used to believe in the traditional liberal view of free speech. No longer, because he realized that free speech did not advance the progressive agenda. So he's jettisoned his view <laughs> in free speech. Wow by the utilitarian view that whatever the, uh, advances the progressive agenda yeah. is the right thing. That, that kind of cynical, power-mad view yeah. is what we're facing. I've, I've never felt, which this is weird to say, but I've never felt more unified with the center-left as somebody on the right yeah. than I do now. As far as somebody who's... On, which is granted is a bit hard to find these days, but yeah. someone who would lean left but be committed to these traditional liberal ideas, as in free speech, right. being actually free speech. I'm like, it, it seems like a small club. It's, it seems like yeah. practically everyone's a conservative who wants to who wants to stand yeah. up for that anymore. Yeah, there's a few. I mean, Nadine Strawson, the former president of the ACLU, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is uh, you know one of the, those rare voices. Yep. Uh, we've done events ADF with her. Um, and and uh, and there are you know there are a handful of others. Yeah. Um, Barry Weiss from the New York Times. Yeah, she's, she's had some interesting stuff on. Yeah, that and so there are a handful of really brave yeah. people, but those people are paying a big price in their communities for yeah. for taking this stand. And so, uh, uh, but but you know that was an American view. I mean, when for most of my life, the vast majority of my life. There was pretty broad agreement on what the general goals were for, for sure. our country, but there was a, a real debate about how we get there. Yep. We don't agree on the goals anymore. Yep. This, is, this, this is a debate about goals and about, you know, really, it's about whether America's founding was legitimate or illegitimate. It, it, it all boils downstream from that. What ideas, and in, in, this continues this a little bit, what ideas are doing the most damage to American freedom right now. And then I'm, I'm going to let you go really soon, so okay. I want to respect your time. Um, well, the, the idea that America was uh, was an illegitimate country, mm -hmm. uh, founded as an illegitimate country, is doing a lot of damage. Um, the idea that um, um, we can control people's speech and we can, you know, that we can control, uh, shut you down if we don't agree with what you're saying. Yep. Uh, and... Uh, you know, on the one hand, they, they have this idea that your story is your story and your truth is your truth. Right. But on the hand, if you say something, they don't like they they set you down as yeah. as as a, you know, a, you're 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 false, and so yeah. we're you know your your false statements are going to be walked off off right. the internet. Right, well, right. Well, what about it's my story? Right. It's you know, my truth. Yeah. It's my truth. It's, you know. Yeah. That's so ridiculous because yeah. it's only. It, Everyone's truth is valid until it contradicts with their truth, yeah, and then it's and then there's false and truth again. Yeah, yeah. right. So it's it's uh, it's you know it's animal farm. You know, so some animals more equal than others. Yep. Um, I, I think the whole the critical race theory um, mm -hmm. is incredibly damaging and yep. is, is unscriptural. And and I say this as somebody who has been um, very vocal, very active. I. I 
I, I, as a volunteer, I did a race discrimination case when I was a, a young lawyer mm. for a uh, black school bus driver who was fired because she was black. Wow. And, uh, and I have um, five black grandchildren. Yeah. I have a daughter-in-law from Nigeria. Yeah. I have, uh, I, I have uh, a grandson. I'm sure I'll have more grandchildren from the same marriage that uh, are uh, dual Nigerian-American citizens, so awesome. really African-American yeah, yeah, yeah. in that literal sense. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and, you know, I... I the, the truth is, is that my black grandkids will be treated differently than my white grandkids, and that's not right. Mm-hmm. And so just saying all that, I, w- I will tell you critical race theory is absolutely horrible because mm-hmm. what it's, it's racism. Yes. It's saying that anybody that's white is evil, intrinsically evil. Right, right. And, and it's, um, they don't believe in equality, they believe in equity, yep. which means we're going to use a term that sounds like equality, but we don't mean equality at all. No. We mean that we're going to advance those that we like and we, we're not going to advance those we don't like. Yeah. And, and that's robbing both equity and equality of any legitimate yeah. meaning. Uh, um, critical it's really, race, really dangerous. Critical race theory is, is re-injecting segregation into American society yeah. and saying, well, this is just the, the good sort of segregation. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I don't. Yeah, there's no I, such thing as good I, segregation. Yeah, I don't believe yeah. in that. Yeah. Right, right. And so, you know, they don't agree with what Martin Luther King said about life. They don't agree with right. what Frederick Douglass said about life. Right. Um, and so I agree with Martin Luther King's uh, assessment of, you know, the goal, and I agree with very much with what Frederick Douglass said. In fact, I would encourage everybody to go read his speech, What the Fourth of July Means to the Slave. It's one of the best speeches I've ever read in my life. That's fantastic. Um, final final thoughts for the Gen J audience. What would you leave with our, with our listeners, some of whom will have been familiar with you, probably seen you've spoken at our events when, when events were a thing. They're starting to slowly become a thing again. Um, and for the people who, who've never, who are just meeting you for the first time, what would you leave them with? Well, I'd say live your life in the way that it's okay if the Washington Post puts on the front page what you did today. Mm. Uh, and that you can have all the right principles, you can have all the right stuff, you know, you know the right things, you can get all prepared. And if you don't live a life that's consistent with what would be honoring to God, yeah. you're gonna, it, it's going to come out and it's going to hurt you. Yeah. And I would just say that, and God won't honor it and God won't use you. Uh, I, w- I would say live a life of humility. You know, He's shown you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but yep. to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly before your God, yep. Micah 6, 8. That's what I would encourage uh, uh, you know, people to, uh, to do. It's live a, a life consistent with your calling. Amazing. Mike, thank you for coming. Thank you for this time. And uh, we, we may have to see if we can get on your schedule and have you back for part two someday. Glad to do it. Thanks so much. Thanks, All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Gen J Podcast, go ahead and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most of the other major podcast sites and apps. If you really liked the show, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review, uh, hopefully a good review to help other people find it. Uh, This is really helpful when we're starting out with a new show to help people connect with the podcasts who are already listening to similar podcasts. We would love to stay in touch with you, so shoot us an email at info at generationjoshua.org or follow us at Generation Joshua on Instagram and Facebook. We will be back soon with another episode.